Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are engaging this morning with the story that some of you have learned with me many times and some of you have never heard of and are going to be shocked and horrified by. So just hang with me. We're going to get to at the end of our text Today, our text goes from 9-1 through 10-11 or something. And the, the very end of what we're studying today is a story of Nadav and Avihu. So those of you who know what I'm talking about know why other people are going to be shocked and horrified. So, but just hang with me. It's all going to be okay. All right. Nadav and Avihu is a story that many of us have learned together in depth. Um, and the only reason I'm saying that is not to have you feel left out. If you haven't, it's that... Trust me, we've been through it many, many, many times on many, many, many levels. This year, because I, as I told you, am reading Dr. Uh, Tamarka Mienkowski's feminist commentary on Leviticus, like some new insights and new ways to look at things, I am seeing Nadav and Abihu in a different light. So I want to actually focus on Chapter 9 this morning to share with you this different perspective that I now have on the story of Nadav and Avihu. So that um, for those of you that this is your first time, it's no problem. It's just that we're not going to spend as much time going into what was up with Nadav and Avihu, what was what was it they did something wrong, what did they do wrong, why did the rabbis have a problem with it, why do the rabbis need to defend it, what if it's this, what if it's that, what does that mean? We're going to spend less time there. Um, so those of you who have never studied this story, it's okay, well, we'll get there again in a few years. Um, but, um, but, but you will have been introduced to the story in a different way than any of us who have studied the story before have. So we're going to go through a little text here. Be patient with me. I, I promise we'll get to questions and comments. But for right now, I just want to work, walk us through chapter nine, like I said, which I don't pay a lot of attention to usually. All right. Chapter nine begins Parshat Shmini. Shmini is the third word in the Parsha. So as usual, the Parsha is named for one of the first words in the Parsha. And Shmini means the eighth, right? So Vayhi Vayom HaShmini, and it was on the eighth day. So this is the eighth day, day eight of what? Well, we have to go back to the end of last week's Torah portion, which we didn't read together because we're reading only the first third of every Torah portion which is the other issue, studying on the triennial cycle um, or, or not reading entire uh, Parshiot and then starting another one, is that we don't remember from last week that the end of last week's Parsha is the consecration of the priests. They are sequestered for seven days in the, sanct- in the, the, the sacred space that is filled, if you look at the end of Exodus, the end of Exodus says that uh, the kavod of God filled the Mishkan, or the, or the Ohel Mo'er, I should say, the tent of meeting, and that meant Moshe couldn't go in. Moshe could not go into the Ohel Mo'er because it was filled with the presence of God. So Dr. Kamienkowski brings some commentary that says this right here is the answer to the problem that we have at the end of Exodus. I didn't even know we had a problem at the end of Exodus. But if you build this whole Mishkan and God's kavod fills it, which is what you want, but nobody can go in there, okay, God's in the Mishkan, the people are out here, there's no real intimacy, there's no real relationship. So all the instructions of Leviticus from the end of Exodus to now are instructions about how a brand new relationship with the divine is going to happen right now, right now in chapter nine, a whole new thing begins. That is that the kavod of God can be in the Mishkan and the priests can enter the Mishkan. And this now is about how they're going to mitigate the relationship between the presence of that kavod and the people and their offering. Mind participant. This is the beginning of a whole new relationship, a whole new system. We should have speaker and we should have everything because here's the speaker. So, Bert, will you figure out who that is? Here's the speaker. Um, all right. I guess you can't unless we're in gallery view, huh? All right. So anyway. I think it was Elena. Elena was having, maybe she's okay now. Okay. So um, so I'm going to start reading in a second. Bert says it's better if I go ahead and read the text. Um, no, no. 
that it's hard to hear him on the podcast um, if I don't read. Okay, so so we they've been sequestered for seven days. This is part of their process for becoming consecrated priests. We're picking up at the end of that seven days. So it was, verse 1, Vayihi, and so it was, Bayom Hashmini, on the eighth day, Karamushel Aaron, Moshe calls to Aaron, Ulevanav, and to his sons, Ulezikne Yisrael, and to the elders of Israel. Zikne Yisrael, the elders of Israel, are the ones who represent the people. Right? So you can't have all the people doing all of this stuff. So the elders represent the people. All right. So verse 2, Vayomer el Aaron. So what does is, what is Moshe say to Aaron? Um, he says, take a calf of the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish and bring them lifne Adonai. Pay attention to those words. Lifne Yudhe Bring them before Yudhe Vavhe. Okay? Before not meaning in time, meaning in, in space. Bring them before the divine presence. Okay. So uh, we need a calf of the herd as a sin offering, because remember the priest, remember on Yom Kippur, the priest has to bring, as the officiant, bring a sin offering for himself, for inadvertent sin, the assumption being that priests will have inadvertently sinned. Okay, which which we've talked about lots before, but I want to always lift up. Priests were seen to be fallible human beings just like the rest of us. It is assumed they've done something wrong without knowing it. Okay, so they bring the sin offering, and then they also bring um, an ola. Remember the first sacrifice of the day and the last sacrifice of the day? Each is a holocaust. So, But we haven't had the system in place yet. So we have to have a holocaust happen. Now, because it's the first offering. All right. Verse 3. And y'all should speak to the people of Israel, saying, take a, a goat offering as a sin offering. So now a sin offering on behalf of the people. Uh, and a calf and a lamb, yearlings without blemish, for a burnt offering. So we're getting another olah. So we're getting a sin offering and an olah uh, by the people. And now we're going to add more because it's the big day. This is the inaugural day of the cult, right? This is the first time the cult is going to function. Everybody must be a little nervous. You've built the stage. You've got the million-dollar sound system. You've got bleachers. You've got the the, the dance Squad ready, you've got costuming, you've got the big stars dressed in their outfits. Is this going to go? Is this going to work? Is this going to happen? Right? So everybody's nervous. Everybody's excited. Everybody, this is a brand new thing. Nobody knows what, what's going to go on. So, um, so we get an extra ox and ram for this first inaugural uh, offering. All right. So they took everything that was commanded by Moshe. Notice it's not God who's commanding here, it's Moshe. Right? We, we presume Moshe knows what God wants, but look how central Moshe is um, and, and how big his role is in this day. And all of the community, this is the same root as the word korban, sacrifice. Right? They came close. Kohaida, all of the community, Vayamdu Lifne Adonai. Again, Lifne Adonai. They came and they drew close and they stood before Yudhe Now Moshe says, what does he say to them? They're all gathered there. This is what Yudhe has commanded that you do. Vayera Alechem Kivod Yudhe and if you do all this and you do it right, what is the big deal? What is this whole day about? Vayera Alechem Kivod Adonai. The presence of Yudhe Vavhe will appear to you. That is the point of having the stadium, of having the bleachers, of having the microphone system and the camera and the blimp flying overhead. It is all to contain and hold this moment of God appearing uh, to the people. This is not the first time God has appeared to the people. Where did we just have it not so long ago? Sinai, right? 
So this is not the first time God has appeared, but this is the first time God will appear to the people in the Mishkan. This is an important moment for P, right? This is a very important moment for the priestly author. Because now it says the priesthood, if they do everything right, are the ones who cause the uh, presence of God to appear uh, to the people. All right, so Moshe says to Aharon, again, using this word, kuf resh vet, right? In English, think K-R-V, karov, right? So over and over and over, we get this idea of drawing close, drawing close. So Moshe says to Aharon, karav el hamizbeach, come close to the altar. The, the commentators, the rabbis want to ask, well, duh, if if Aaron's going to officiate, he's going to be offering the sacrifices. Of course, he has to draw close to the altar. Why does Moshe have to tell him, come, draw close to the altar? There's lots of interesting commentary about why not. I want you all to think about, you have to think crazy. You have to think like the rabbis. Um, you have to think super crazy um, to understand where the commentators go with this. So think about it. Think crazy. Why might Aharon be a little hesitant to approach the Mizbeach, to approach the altar? And you're going to do the chatat, the sin offering, and you're going to do the holocaust. And you will atone on behalf. You'll make expiation on behalf of Ha'am, the people, right? And yourself and the people. And sacrifice the people's offering and make expiation for them as Yehudah Bafe has commanded. Again, you hear the word? And Aharon came close to the altar, Vayushchat et Egel hachatat, and he slew the Egel, the calf, for the sin offering. Now what happens in verse 9? Vayakrivu b'nei Aharon, and the, the, the sons of Aharon drew close. They drew near. What, what, what did they draw near to him? Actually, it's not that they drew near. They drew near to him. They brought close to him, what? Et hadam. The blood. They have to bring Aaron the ritual detergent that's going to right clean the place of impurity and of, of the impurity caused by sin so that God's kavod can come and be there. Because remember, sin, the dross of sin repels the holy. It repels the divine. It repels purity. And so God is only pure. And so God can't be there if there's all that junk. And blood, the life force, is the only thing powerful enough to cleanse that and get rid of that. And then in the time of COVID-19, we can start to really understand, right, that, that you can't just do X. You have to have antibacterial stuff or it's not going to kill the virus, right? And so that's what everybody's afraid of. They're not afraid of the virus. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them if they get the virus. So that, that's exactly the same kind of thing that you have to have the only stuff that can get rid of the dangerous stuff, because if you don't get rid of the dangerous stuff, bad, bad things can happen. Right. All right. Whoever thought we'd be afraid of grocery stores. We're not afraid of the grocery store. We're afraid of what's in the grocery store that might not have been cleaned well enough for us to be safe. That's exactly what's happening here in the rest of this system. All right. Um, and so he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar because we're, we're now also using the altar for the first time. And he pours out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So remember how dramatic that must have looked? A big white stone altar and this crimson blood, right? A very powerful visual. And the fat and the kidneys and the protuberance of the liver from the sin offering, he turned into smoke on the altar, right? That goes to God. That goes completely to God, as God has commanded Moshe. So we have to take Moshe's word for it. But we have no reason to doubt Moshe's word, right, up until now. And the flesh and the skin were consumed in fire outside the camp. And then he slaughtered the burnt offering. So now he's um, slaughtering the olah. And Aaron's sons passed the blood to him, and he dashes it against the side of the altar, they passed the burnt offering to him in sections as well as the head, and he turned it into smoke on the altar. All right. So, right, they remember we talked about what a big job this is to slaughter an animal, to skin it, to clean it, to cut it up is not 
it's not an easy thing. This is a lot going on here, right? When we're talking about um, slaughtering bulls and stuff. So, um, and so these sections are put on the altar. He washes the entrails in the legs and turns them into smoke on the altar, um, of course, because it's a holocaust. It's going to be completely consumed. And next he brings forward the people's offering. He takes a goat. He presents it just like the other one. He brought forth the Olaf for the people and sacrifices it according to regulation, meaning you don't need to go into all the details of how to do it. You've been told that already, presumably. Uh, and then he brings forward the mincha, the grain offering, and he take mimena, and he will fill his what is I always forget what this is called the palm. He, he would fill his palm with dough, right? And so he and then he burns that on the altar along with the ola. and he slaughters the ox and the ram. So this is a, this is a lot of work going on here. Um, and dashes the blood against all sides of the altar. Again, we get all those things that might have been used for um, divination. They get burned up so that there's no confusion that they're looking at the protuberance of the liver or the kidneys for any kind of divination purposes, which was going on all around them and preceding the Israelite cult. So it's very clear that the priests are not using it for the kind of divination that's happening around ancient Israel, but instead that is all burned up and given to God. And they lay these fat parts over the breasts, and Aaron turned the fat parts into smoke on the altar. When you turn the fat into smoke, that is the reach nichoach. That is the pleasant odor that God receives from the sacrifices. Right? So we've talked about you know, knowing somebody's griddling in the neighborhood because you smell that amazing smell. That's the fat burning. Um, and that amazing smell is what God receives um, from all of this business. All right, so he's going to make uh, an elevation offering as well. And he lifts, and now, so, so now all that's done, all the slaughtering, butchering, cutting up, placing on the altar, burning stuff, all that goes on for a long time, one can presume. This is all going on. This takes a really long time. Now, verse 22, so, he, so Aaron now, lifts his hands towards the people, and he blesses them, and then he comes down from offering the sin offering, uh, the burnt offering, and the shlamim, the uh, offering of greeting. So some commentators want to say, wait a minute, he should have come down first and blessed the people. Like, it makes no sense. Why does he come down afterwards? But whatever. All right. And, uh, and Moshe and Aaron, what happens now? Vayavo el ohel They come into the tent of meeting. Vayetzu. And then they came out. And when they came out, vayivarchu etaam. They bless the people again. And here comes the big, this should be in bold. It's 26 point print. And the presence of yud appeared before all of the people. What else, what happens when the kavod of Adonai appears before all the people? Look at 24. And a fire came out from before yud We're getting that again, from before yud What happens? So God's kavod appears, and a fire comes from where? We're going to talk about that. So a fire goes out, milifnei Adonai, from before God, and it consumes the olah, <coughs> the holocaust, and the chalavim, right, and the fat parts, which is God's portion, sorry, vayar kol ha'am, and all the people saw, vayaronu, and they shouted, vayiplu alpnehem, and they fell on their faces. All right, this is the big moment. This is what the whole thing has been about. Will it work? Yay! Right? The lights come on, the drum roll, and boom! 
God's kavod appears on the stage, and a fire comes from off stage and consumes the, the sacrifices, meaning they have been accepted. When we give a gift, there's another book I was reading about sacrifice last year. When we give a gift, there's a lot of anxiety on the part of the giver. There's never anxiety on the part of someone being given a gift, right? You, li- you like it or you don't. I'm wearing a new shirt given to me for my birthday yesterday by Robin Close. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, so the anxiety was on Robin. Will she like it? Did I pick out the right thing? Am I insulting her by even offering to come to her house at a time like like So all these things are the anxiety of the giver, of the presenter, because what we want most, what the anxiety is about is will the gift be accepted? So this moment is what it's all been for, is will God accept what the people have brought close? Because the korban, the sacrifice, is the way that people now will be able to draw close to the divine. They've built this whole tabernacle. They've given all their stuff. They've gotten all the artisans together. They followed all the instructions. They went through the entire construction process. They spent a week consecrating the priests. This is the moment. Will it all have been worth it? Will it work? Will it fly? And it does. All right. That's chapter nine. We usually skip all that and go right to 10-1, but I don't want to do that this year. So I brought up a couple of things. So one is, why might Aharon be a little nervous and need Moshe's encouragement to come forward um, in in this whole business, like coming forward to the uh, altar? And how does it change our understanding of what's coming next that I have emphasized so much chapter nine that we usually kind of zip through and go right to the big story at 10. So anybody want to speak to any of those things or does anyone have a question? And Bert, you are the one who can see whose hands are raised. Susan. Yeah. I have a comment about what happened before uh, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God wouldn't show him his kavod and yet he shows it to the people. So there, there is a manifestation of the divine that Moshe is asking for that is more intimate than this kavod. Okay. That, that, that Moshe is asking for something else, something that, that you, he wouldn't survive, right, seeing. This is, this is a different kavod. This is God's kavod that appears to them like as fire surrounded by cloud, right? God's kavod yeah. appears by fire at night, by cloud in the no, yeah. In the day when they're moving, it's that cover that that you can you you get a you think of it as as warping the visual field, right? A little bit that they can handle. But Moshe was asking for something else, something more intimate that couldn't be handled. So I saw Mehmet and Rita. Mehmet, you want to ask something? And, and Bob and yeah. I think the, the, the anxiety on uh, Aaron's side um, is, is twofold. It, it goes in both directions. Firstly, is God going to accept uh, the whole setup, the whole stage they've set up for God? And the other one is, uh, are the people going to be convinced what's, what they're staging for God? And, and is, is, the, is God going to appear? Is, is the protagonist going to come and, and be on stage for everyone to... Um, uh, for Aaron and, 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 and Moses to be accepted. And so if we, if we go with that reading, then Aaron's hesitance is really about how are they going to see me? What if this fails? What if I'm not efficacious? So A, God doesn't respond, so I didn't do it right somehow. Maybe it's something about me. Maybe I'm inherently flawed just the way we all have insecurities, that he's insecure, that he won't be able to do it, and God won't respond. And then then, then even if God does, will the people buy it? So in in either case, it's kind of about Aaron's success, right? Like he's he's concerned in in that reading for his success. Okay, Rita? I was just going to back up to the very beginning uh, on the eighth day. I wonder if that number eight is symbolic because <laughs> um, that was the Brit Milah day. In other words, it's sort of reinforcing the covenant originally um, proposed, and this is sort of like a new uh, version of it. 
Gold star, Rita. Um, so day eight is the day of circumcision. Day eight is you take something that's been built. It's been in there for nine months. It's been growing. It's been, you know, mom's been making it in there. And then it comes out and it's, it's here, right? Just like the Mishkan. They've put all this attention on it. It's here now. Okay, well, now we take seven days. And on the eighth day, so seven is this, the number of completion, right? The seven days of creation. Seven is a whole entire complete unit. What is the first number past that? Eight. And so we go into the eighth day. This baby is here for seven days. It's, it's, it's come through a whole cycle, right? The priests are isolated for seven days. They come through an entire cycle. And now day eight, we begin something entirely new. We begin a relationship with the divine. It's a baby. It's just a baby. But day eight, what, it, what happens on day eight? It's not just a baby anymore. What is it, Rita? It's a Jew. It's a Jew. <laughs> it becomes a Jew on day eight. Or technically becomes a member of the covenanted people on day eight, right? So that, here we go. You lock them up for seven days. You bring them out. Day eight, exactly right. They're going to start a new relationship. They are going to enact a new kind of covenanted relationship with the divine, which has not happened before because we saw at the end of Exodus. No one could go in because God's kavod was there. Now there's a way to do that. And they're beginning that system that's going to stay in place until Mm. when? Till the destruction of the second temple. Right? Okay. Very good. Bob Ettinger, you had a question or a comment? Yeah. Um, I want to take Mehmet's um, point. Uh, I, that's what occurred to me first, that Aaron was afraid, you know, what would happen. But the other thing that it occurs to me is, you know, Aaron in this way takes over Moses' place. He becomes the head honcho. Um, all of these things are his to do and only his to do. <clears throat> and, you know, his concern is really, you know, now within this, I'm supposed to be the leader. And can I do it? Nice. So so another level of, of exploring what might be his insecurity is that he's not been the guy doing all the stuff. Moshe's the one who threw his rod down, right? Moshe's the one who raises his arms, right, to beat Amalek. Or, you know, so M- Moshe is the one who raises his staff over the sea. Moshe's the guy. He's the operator. And now, in this system, it's on Aaron. So maybe an awareness, uh, a sense of awe and humility in the face of now it's on him, right? And we all know, we all know those moments because y'all are all old enough, all y'all here, to know a moment of, uh-oh, now it's me, right? The first time, you know, someone said rabbi, and I realized they were talking to me. It, it was like, and not one of my teachers. It was like, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Right? And there's a little bit of fake it till you make, or there's, there's a little bit of panic and anxiety around, wait a minute, can I really be this? Can I really do this? I've seen other people do it, and I've been studying, but really? Right? The first time Ellie called me mom, it's like, whoa, who's that? So, um, so okay, love that. Um, let's go to the fact that one of the things he offers, I'm going to give you a very, very obvious on-the-nose hint. One of the things he's going to offer is an ego, a calf. Why, why, what might the commentators be tying his anxiety to? The golden calf. Exactly. The last time Aaron had a whole ritual role and this whole business of serving as the officiant, it was when he was helping the people worship Yudhe with the image of an ego, with the image of a calf, right? And we know how that went. How did that go? Not so good. Badly. Badly. So the some of the commentators want to suggest that Aaron's humility comes out of the fact that he owns, he takes responsibility 
for having officiated in a way that was really, really wrong. And he has accepted his failure to the point where he's hesitant to come forward and serve at the Mizbeach now. And that, that, say many of our commentators, that is what entitles him to the priesthood, is that he, he understood what he did wrong with the Egel. He understood that it was a terrible mistake, and he's taking responsibility. He's owning that by saying, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> like, I should be the one. I'm not sure I want to do this again, right? What if I do it wrong? What if I do something like that? Everybody paid for it, right? Remember a plague comes out and kills all these people? What if the age comes out and kills people? I'm setting you up for 10, um, right? So, so some anxiety about that, right? About the, this has gone really badly before. And so that leadership, part of responsible leadership is to be able to own what one has done wrong, say the rabbis, and the ability to take that into account in how one goes forward in one's behavior after that. And this is, so for the rabbis, they read this to Aaron's credit. That he doesn't rush forward to take his place on the stage. He's very aware, um, because he's been here before, he's very aware of, of how badly this could go and, um, and wants to be responsible about um, how he leads the people forward. So this is the backdrop for what's coming now uh, in the Nadav and Avihu scene. So remember, an Aish went out from before, a fire went out from before Yudhei from before Adonai, and consumed everything on the altar. And everybody's like, yay, that's amazing, it worked, yay. So let's go to verse 1 of chapter 10. We've had all the instructions for building stuff. We've had all the instructions for how to make offerings. Everything got built according to specs. Everything was meticulously following the instructions. They meticulously prepare for being consecrated. They meticulously follow the, for the first time, they've never done this before. For the first time, they follow all these new rules about sacrifice. And it works. Yay! Verse 1, now that's all of Leviticus, right? And the instructions were in Exodus. So we've had a long time living with, here's the instructions, here's what you're supposed to do, and they fulfill it. That's a huge part of Exodus and the whole beginning of Leviticus. And we and it all worked. So we just got the highlight of a big chunk of the book of Exodus and the whole beginning of Leviticus. It all worked. Now we should all go home. We should have a bagel and a schmear and... Diana, we're done. But we're Jews. So that's not going to happen. Chapter 10, verse 1. So here we go. They take the children of Israel, who? Nadav and Avihu, his sons. Each took their fire pan. And they placed in it, uh, in them, ish, fire. Vayasinu aleha ktoret. And they put on her, is it the fire pan, is it the ish? Um, they put on her, on it, ktoret, incense. Vayakrivu lifne Adonai. How many times have we just heard this? Right? They came before Adonai. They brought it near God. Okay, that's a big deal. Like that that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you do with all of this stuff. The blood, the incense, the 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 korban, the sacrifice, the whole point is to bring it close to God. That's the word for it. For offering it is they brought it close lifne Adonai before Yehovah. What did they bring? Ash zara. An alien, a strange fire. Asher lotzivautam that was not commanded them. Verse two, Adonai. We just had the culmination, the proof of success is that a fire went out from before Yurevaveh vatochalotam and consumed them. Vayamuchu lifne Adonai and they died before Yurevaveh. All right. This is exactly what just happened. 
that meant success, that it all worked, that the system's going to be fine. We're going to be in relationship to the divine. Yay! We get the exact same language here. A fire comes out from before Yodei Buffet, presumably from the Holy of Holies, and consumed them. That's what God does. God, that fire comes before God and consumes what's on the altar. Okay? But now they're dead. Now Moshe is going to go to Aaron and he's going to say something. So I want you to think, what would you say? Or what would you put in the mouth of the character Moshe in this moment? Imagine this. Aaron's two sons have just been consumed by the divine fire. They're dead. Day one of the priesthood. They're dead. Vayomer Moshe el Aharon. And what does Moshe say to Aharon? Who asher diber This is what Yudhevavhe meant when God said, Lemor, saying, and now we're going to get a quote from Yudhevavhe that Moshe is relating to Aaron. This is what Yudhevavhe meant when Yudhevavhe said, quote, be krovai ekadesh. In those, through those who come close to me, Ekadesh, I will be sanctified. And before all of the people, the fire comes out from before God. And now God says, in those who come close to me, I will be sanctified. And in the and from before and before all the people, same language in Hebrew, exact same terminology. The before the presence of our, before all the people, Echaved, I will be glorified. Vayidom Aharon. And what is, <coughs> what is Aharon's response? Vayidom Aharon. And Aharon was silent. All right. For those of you who have learned this story before, <coughs> How does my focus on chapter nine change? Not change, but how? What if this is the first time we were hearing this story? If we forget all that we've ever heard about it, if we were reading it this way for the first time, what might feel a little different, right? Things felt different for me right away. Um, if you've never heard the story before, how does putting this in the context of chapter nine, what does it mean for you? You're just hearing this for the first time. So either way, if you've heard it before and it's in a new context, if you've never heard it before and you're hearing it in this context, talk to me, people. It seems to me like the, they were accepted as a sacrifice. Does, it, does that feel new? Does that feel a little bit different? I mean, we've talked about that possibility before, but did it stand out differently this time? To me. That's exactly what happened for me. I was like, well, well obviously it's the exact Tamar. I mean, it's, it's Tamar Kamiankowski who points it out, right? But she says it's the exact same language as what happened with the sacrifices that were a success. There is nowhere here in the text, nowhere does it say, they did anything wrong. And you could read it with my emphasis on chapter nine. You could read it that their offering was successful. The fire comes out before Yudhe and consumes them. It, it was a success. Yay. <laughs> right. But why aren't we going yay this time? Because they're dead. <laughs> right. Um, but perhaps if we step back, coming from a certain culture, right, in the ancient Near East, possibly that wasn't an, an understanding, right, that one could, one could offer oneself in such a way that success would be being consumed by the divine. Mehmet, I see your hand. Um, I find it a bit contradictory to um, Isaac's story. Because earlier on, we saw that, you know, God didn't accept Isaac being offered uh, 
and now it's it's happening. It's quite contradictory to me. Yeah. It's so, just, it's just a question. I I don't have any. No, questions. no, no. Of course, we, that's a question we would have to ask. How come? And then also, and then also, two sons. Uh, we see on a few instances that two sons are being mentioned. I go very, I go to the, I mean, uh, to early texts like um, Cain and Abel, two sons, and then Isaac and Ishmael, and so on. And then now it's again about two sons. It cannot usually, be a, it cannot usually, be a coincidence. Usually, our stories of two sons are about conflict between them. Right. This is why we we bless our children. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, the first two, not to have fighting between them. So that's why we bless our boys to be like them and not like all the others, <laughs> because they fought and killed each other and fought and ran away from each other and caused all these problems. Right. So usually it's about the relationship between the brothers. Here they are parallel. This is parallel play by the brothers with fire, right? They, they are playing literally with fire. And we see what happens, right? Now to your question, we have to ask the question, well, then how do you hold this up against the Akedah, where God says, you know, don't harm even a hair on his head. So you have to think, most times we interpret that story to be a polemic against human sacrifice. It does not say that in the text. In the text, that's, that's us. I'm not, I'm not saying we're wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't say that in the text. It says bring him as an offering. Like that's something normal. And then God says, nope, I don't want it. I don't want, I don't want him as a sacrifice today. Doesn't mean I may, may not want him next Thursday. I've changed my mind. I don't want it right now. So that's one possibility that it's not, that it's not exactly totally a polemic against human sacrifice, but let's say it is. Let's say that story is that you don't offer human beings on the altar as a sacrifice. What's the difference here? No one's offering them. They bring, they are the priests. They have access to the divine fire channel, right? They, they just did that. They made it effective. It worked. And so now they come with their key. The fire pans and the incense, they come with a key and they open that door themselves, right? They come before Yerevave themselves and the fire comes and consumes them. They are not being slaughtered and put on the altar, God forbid. So I we, think, we, we uh, have people sacrificing themselves right now in the COVID-19 crisis. So, and we have people who set themselves on fire in Tibet to, you know, to to protest or they, you know, so exactly. So I do think that this is Torah. I do think Torah is saying this is not the way, right? This is, this is not what we want is people setting themselves on fire as a way to worship Yodhei Vafei. I think that, I think that's fairly clear. I think we could agree, but you, but you have to look at the text carefully to say, where is it in there that they did anything wrong and that this is a bad thing? It doesn't say that. So, Dr. Kamienkowski says, where do we find the clue that this is not what we're supposed to do? The clue comes in the rest of Chapter 10, the laws of Kashrut. Why? How does that relate at all? She says it is not an accident that the laws of Kashrut, all of these laws about how we consume, what we consume, what we don't consume, down to the details. She says it's not an accident that that text is here right after Nadav and Avihu. It is a polemic against the story of Nadav and Avihu. Tell me how. I see. I, uh, I see. Uh, <laughs> as being the beginning of God saying, I'm going to completely other take, and then Linda had a comment as well, Linda Scheibel, that um, God is saying, you do it my way, or zap, and then, oh, by the way, now here's some food, and you've already seen what happens if you don't do things the way you're supposed to. So Linda had her hand up before. Well, Linda, my it wasn't a question, it was sort of a comment in thinking about 
why that happened to the sons when they purposely or not purposely, you know, I would I would have thought that maybe even Yudhe Bhavde would know the difference and either make a comment, say something else, maybe you should do it differently or maybe you shouldn't do it at all. If, if God is communicating with Moshe or, or Aaron, maybe, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be doing this right now. I, and it, it almost seems that God didn't know the difference. That pres- no, that presumes, you're presuming that it was a failure, that they did something wrong. What if they did it right? Well, maybe they even didn't know that they were doing it right or wrong, but God should maybe be able to tell the difference. I, but, that but, was a, but, I don't know that I believe if, that. If we, if we read it as they got what they wanted, nothing, God, God can tell the difference. God consumed them. Right. But, God, is, God is giving them what they wanted. Why would God speak against it? You're presuming God doesn't want it. I, well, uh, that's just a question that kind of ran this way and this way. And, um, but I'm not to say that I believe that, but um, I don't know if I do or not, but it was just a thought that I had. Right. Um, so I'm answering your thought. Which is, <laughs> thank you very much. It could be that they, of course, God knows the difference. The priest would never have a God who doesn't know the difference. They brought the right code. They brought the right key. And what does that do when you do it right and you bring the right code and the right key? A fire comes out from before Yudhe and consumes the offering. Ah. So that's, I'm just saying that's one way to answer your reading. Where do the rabbis find that they did something wrong? They find it in the word zara. They brought alien fire, strange fire, and then we get this term that was not commanded them. So the rabbis who want to see this as a mistake, it's not God's mistake. God is just a nuclear force. They did not go in with the right equipment. They went in unauthorized to the nuclear, you know, reactor. They went in unprotected without the right gear into an unauthorized experience and the result of that always is going to be disaster. You got too close without, right, without mitigating it and following all the rules exactly. And if you don't do that, if you don't follow the rules exactly, the only result can be nuclear meltdown for you. That's just the result. That's just simply how things are. So that's how the rabbis want to read it, that they went in to the danger zone and did something against regulations that had not been given to them as instruction to do. And that's what caused, and all, all that's going to happen is the nuclear force is going to come out and then you're dead, right? It's not about God deciding or not deciding. They triggered the ish that comes and consumes. In this case, you might want to say what's in its path. All right, David. Is this the parallel to last year coming into the Mishkan without the fire pan and dying? Are we seeing the same thing here that you just have to follow the rules, period? And it's not a question of human sacrifice. It's just you didn't follow the rules. So that that's certainly how the rabbis read it. You came into the danger zone and you did not follow the rules. And, and this is, this is the, the natural consequence of that. For sure, that's how... The tradition reads it, 100%. So, so it's not a uh, sanction of human sacrifice at all. It has nothing to do wait, with it. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't, I didn't say that, right? I said the rabbis read it that they did something wrong, and that's why they died. I'm, I want to leave you with Tamar Kamienkowski's interpretation, who on purpose offers a queer reading of this text. And this chapter from her feminist commentary originally appeared as an article in the book Torah Queries, and she wants to offer a queer reading. Um, so is there anybody who wants to say something before I go there? To conclude? I don't think it's anything new. I think we've talked about this before. But I thought the clue as to what happened was Aaron's silence. Um, the, 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 and what did Aaron do? He was silent. 
because he knew he had screwed up because he didn't instruct the kids uh, to be really careful to follow the rules, and and it it was a disaster for him personally. So that so that certainly is one. That's one way to understand it is that his silence means he doesn't object, which means he understands what happened. Okay. So um, then the other Robert, then Judith Ubik, and then Meg had her hand up as well. Yeah, this is, this is a totally bizarre uh, reference. But if kosher comes right after this, it's very, you know, humans are not kosher. We don't have cloven hooks. We don't chew the cud. There's a lot we don't do. We don't have scales. Um, there's a lot we don't do. And so this could very well be a lesson in thou shalt not practice any cannibalism or anything of the sort. So God consumed them, but you don't consume other humans. Because of the kashrut rules that come next. Okay. Judith? I had a question about the intricacy of the eighth day being the, the day of Greek Milah. And there being a blood sacrifice there. For sure. You, yeah, you need blood and you need danger, right? For their, so in a way, it, it is a big deal. It's a part of the entire sacrificial. It's a sacrifice towards something, not negating something, however. It's toward joining. Correct. Correct. Med? I wonder. I'm. It's just as an impression from every everything that we're um, that you're you're saying. It's we talk about accountability, you know, or or Aaron's accountability after the golden calf um, incident, or this notion about our ability, or um, like how to reconnect with the divine. This notion of moving from isolation to community, or from priest to to the people. Um, the absolute. Refine ongoing refinement of what it means and how do we connect with the greater thing that will take us forward and and the refinement maybe of the uh, kosher rules after is like the the more nuance as to the intricacy and the hit and miss that we all i i can't speak for everyone but that you know a, a seeker of any kind is trying to to, to make that connection so that when we do emerge from this virus or we do emerge however we emerge, that um, we're doing it from a, do, a new place so that we can actually start new. I mean, can we start, are we going to pick up from where we were before? What needs to transmute? What needs to happen? What prescription, what intricacy, what nuance do we need to truly come forward new? A lot to chew on, right? A lot to think about there. Um, for those of us moving into meditation, we're going to talk about Vayidol Maharon. We're going to sit with this idea of, an, in the face of this horror for Aaron, Vayidom. He was silent. He was still. In the midst of the terror, in the midst of like what had to be horrible grief for him, Vayidom. So we're going we're gonna to go there. Um, but I want to close uh, Torah study um, with the words of Dr. Tamar Kaminkowski, who first brings forward Philo, um, right, an ancient commentator um, who he reads the action of Nadav and Avihu and God's response as altogether positive. According to Philo, Nadav and Avihu consciously chose to sacrifice or shed their physical bodies in order to ascend to a more divine realm. So we could symbolically say what Meg just said. They want, they want to refine. They want to let go the stuff that is imperfect, right? And um, and they want to let go of this form and, and become one with the divine. Um, and so they, they have this, this all-consuming passion, this all-consuming passion for the divine, um, a piety, a zeal, um, which was alien to creation, meaning being human beings in a creative world, but akin to God. That's Philo. All right. So Kaminkowski says, we can expand Philo's reading through a queer reading lens. These men having been in close proximity to other men for a week and in the presence of the male figure that elicits trembling and passion and is seemingly unattainable, choose to risk all the cultural norms and legal prescriptions of their generation in order to merge with this ultimate male figure. 
in a world with highly prescribed rules regarding every aspect of their behavior, rules that are infused with strict boundaries regarding what it is to be male and female and what it means to be religious leaders, they break through all of the boundaries for the sake of love and the desire for an ultimate merging. The Indigo Girls express this idea more poetically in their song, Strange Fire. I come to you with strange fire. I make an offering of love. The incense of my soul is burned by the fire in my blood. God accepts the men and takes them into his innermost sanctum, and he consumes them in an act of burning passion. There is no indication that God is angry with them. In fact, one could argue the opposite. God's verbal response is, I am made holy through those that come close to me. Thus, God's holiness is supported and even enhanced by the acts of Nadab and Abihu. That's according to the text. Therefore, Leviticus 10, 1 through 2 can be read in, as, as an example of homoerotic attraction between human males and the male God of the Bible. Each desires to come closer to the other. Nadab and Abihu strip themselves literally and figuratively. They strip themselves of their common clothing, of societal expectations, of confining rules, and they come forward. God meets them in a passion of fire, taking them completely. And then she goes on to say that, of course, within the rabbinic debate around this story, a desire for intimacy with the divine and the merging of the human and divine male figures is completely erased. So the entire characterization of the story, she says, um, by the tradition, by later interpretation, um, is such that it completely erases any, um, any iota of this kind of passionate, and she uses the word homoerotic, right? These are men who are locked up together. They're eating, they're drinking, they're sleeping, they're locked up together with the divine. And it works in a way. They fall in love. They're completely devotees. They are zealous. They are pious. They want to unite with the male God. And when they bring their offering, they, they come close. They bring it close. God responds with exactly what they want, consuming them completely, taking them in completely as an act of um, consummating that love. They become one with the male God of the Bible. Um, and, but that is completely erased in the uh, tradition that follows. So for me, it's interesting to, to shift from the idea of for or against human sacrifice, rather that the, the, the danger of breaking all boundaries, like we as feminists who, you know, she then writes, and I already lost it, um, but she writes that, you know, if we're going to, be, you know, those of us who want to be feminist in critiquing, who reject, she says, who reject simple dualistic modes of thinking, Leviticus 10 can serve an example of resistance or as a reminder that the tighter the controls, the stronger the impulse to break out of those controls, right? That we want, we want a life of passion. We want passion for the divine. We want a longing to connect, but we have to be really careful, right? That when we break boundaries, when we completely step outside the rules of those, of all boundaries, terrible things can happen too, right? One can set oneself on fire as an act of defiance, as an act of protest. And the Judaism doesn't want that. Judaism wants living Jews to be in relationship to the living God. We don't want, right, Torah, these words we're told in Torah, so you should live by them. The idea is not to die. The idea is not to so step outside the bounds that one explodes. That, that's, not, that's not the goal. So, um, so our question that we're left to sit with is, you know, how do we discern when it's time to push against boundaries, when it's time to challenge what we're told are the absolute authoritative rules, when is it time for us to push against that out of our love and passion for what we believe is the divine, right? That we believe there is, I believe the power of the divine works through me when I push against some of those boundaries of inequity, right? Of the patriarchy, of what, fill in the blank, whatever, of injustice, of economic injustice, of whatever. Um, I believe that's, that's because of my love of, of godliness and holiness and wanting to see that in human society, 
So I totally understand that a love of God can cause us to push against boundaries that are imposed 100%. But, but if that's all we do, there's a real danger in that. If we're only about breaking boundaries, there's a real danger inherent in that too, that our passion can become so zealous that we actually cause serious damage um, to ourselves and to other people. Um, I'm watching some boundary breaking happening on television that I just can't quite get my head around um, in terms of roles and responsibilities. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, so I think that's that's the, the spiritual challenge of this week's Parsha. And we'll sit with that a little bit in meditation. But the challenge is to figure out where are we called to push, where are we called to challenge the rules and the boundaries, and um, where are the ways that we're just pushing to push or pushing out of a passion that doesn't pay attention to structures and the ways that they protect us and the ways they make society function. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.